Now, if you've got a Bible this morning, you're going to want to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 7, and next week we'll wrap up this series, and I'm, I've already started planning uh, for our next series that we're doing. We're, we're doing a series called Psalms for the Summer, and we're going to be going through different um, psalms all summer long. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, there's so much I, that the book of Psalms is just a treasure trove of, of incredible things, and so... Um, we will be jumping into that, but we have uh, this week and next week to wrap up the book of Esther. And if you're kind of a history person, this series you probably enjoyed uh, pretty thoroughly. There's, there's so much information in here, historical information, and this story is so crazy, it's hard to believe that it's true. Um, but it's, it's backed up by, by other historians as well, um, these events that happened. And um, it's, it's an incredible story of how God used some ordinary people in Esther and Mordecai um, to make a difference and to save millions of lives. So just to give you a recap of everything that's happened so far, if you've missed the first few weeks of the series, you can jump online and get caught up. Um, but Esther and Mordecai are Jews living in Persia. They're living in the city of Susa, and they're living secretly as Jews, they don't want the world to know um, who they are or where they're from. And uh, as a kind of weird twist in this story, um, the queen at that time, Vashti, gets deposed. She gets kicked out of her position as queen. And then they have a contest um, to bring in a new queen, and Esther wins that contest. And about the same time, this guy Mordecai, who is her cousin, um, but also her adopted father. So Esther's an orphan. Uh, Mordecai adopts her. Um, so he's, he's a cousin and a father figure at the same time. He uncovers this plot while he's sitting at the gate to uh, this plot to kill the king. He tells Esther about it. Uh, the king's life is saved. And then this other guy that's introduced, is his name is Haman. He's promoted to number two in the kingdom. Mordecai doesn't like Haman. Uh, part of that has to do with their ancestry and, and the background of their families not necessarily getting along. But he refuses to acknowledge Haman and to honor him. And Haman is upset about that. He asks, they ask him why he won't do that. He says, because I'm a Jew and, and Haman's an eggite, right? So he's historically our peoples don't get along. And um, so... He disrespects Haman. Haman takes offense to that, and he decides, well, the most sensible thing to do here is to murder the entire Jewish population, right? Logical step, right? So um, Haman puts this plan in place. He gets the king to sign a decree that says on this 13th day of the month, all, all the Jews can be killed and um, puts, signs that into law. Hey, or Mordecai realizes that he's put himself and his people in a terrible predicament all of a sudden. And so he enlists Esther to help um, address this issue and to communicate with the king. Esther very reluctantly agrees to, to be a part of this. And last week we talked about how Esther approached the king, how the king, at risk to her own life, the king extended his scepter to her, said, what do you want? She invited him to a banquet. And she said, bring Haman along. And so the king and Haman sat down for a banquet. They had a good time. He asks her a second time, hey, what do you want? 
And um, we don't know if this was insight that she received from God or part of her master plan from the very beginning, or if she just chickened out at the first banquet and, and wanted to stall. But she says, hey, just come to another banquet. Let's do this again tomorrow night. Well, after that first banquet, we, we read about how Haman um, stews on Mordecai's disrespect, how he sees him again, and how he has everything in the world at his fingertips. He's number two in the kingdom. He has, he has everything he could possibly want except for the respect of this one man. And he's fixated on this frustration that he has with Mordecai and his disrespect. And so he comes home and he's whining about it to his wife. And his wife says, hey, here's what you should do. Build a gallows 75 feet tall to hang him on and then go ask the king tomorrow if you can hang him. Well, that same night, the king can't sleep. And so he has the book of memorable deeds read to him. And he remembers that uh, Mordecai saved his life. And as a result, he wants to honor him. And so he brings Haman in and he asks him, hey, what should be done to the man uh, that the king wants to honor? And Haman, assuming that he was talking about himself because we're all self uh, involved and we only care about ourselves and we're thinking that everybody else is thinking about us too. And so Haman says, this is what you should do. You should dress him up in royal robes, put him on the king's horse, put a crown on his head, parade him through the city and say, this is the man that the king wants to honor. And the king said, great, do that for Mordecai. And Haman was mortified <laughs> as a result. And so he had to lead Mordecai, this man that he was walking into the building, preparing to ask the king to have executed. Now he's marching around the city, honoring him. And he goes home to his wife and his wife says, listen, I don't think it's working out for you, bud. I think you're in trouble here. I think something is going wrong for you. And so that's where we left off last week. And um, we're going to go through chapter 7 and chapter 8 today. I'm going to kind of recap chapter 7 because we just don't have time to read everything. And then we'll actually read through most of chapter 8 this morning. All right, so chapter 7, the king and Haman are back at the second dinner, the second banquet with Esther, the second party that she's thrown. And at this point, um, Haman does not know the connection between Esther and Mordecai. She doesn't know that they're related. She doesn't know that they're, um, that they're both Jews. So they're eating and drinking. And uh, honestly, with all the drinking that's going on in this book, I'm not sure how King Xerxes has a functioning liver. But somehow he's still going. And he says to Esther a third time, what do you want? Up to half of my kingdom I'll give to you. He's saying, I'm not stupid. I know you didn't just want me to come to dinner. I know you want something from me. What is it? And Esther answers, basically, she says, I want my life to be spared. And I want my people not to be killed. And she even goes as far to say, if, if we were just being sold into slavery, I probably wouldn't say anything at all. I probably wouldn't even bother asking. But since we're going to die, I felt like I needed to say something. And so the king... Um, uh, after two dinner parties, is back to being in love with his queen again, whom he hadn't bothered seeing in the last 30 days, <laughs> asks her, so who's responsible for, for somebody wanting to murder your family and your people? Now, if I were Esther here, I would be tempted to say, you, you idiot, <laughs> right? You're the one that signed the law that says uh, where you're going to kill all my people. But she's smarter than that, thank goodness, right? And Esther has grown up a lot in this story. 
She knows that she has to get the king to go against his own decree, but do so in a way that doesn't cast any blame on him, because if you blame the king, things do not go well for you. We've already kind of learned that in this story. <laughs> in fact, even if you say no to the king, you're probably going to get deposed. So um, the key, she pins the whole thing on Haman, which, let's be honest, that's fair, right? That he deserved it. And she says, a foe and an enemy... This wicked Haman, okay, now, just picture this room for a second, because this is a dinner party of three people, <laughs> right? There's three people at the dinner table tonight, the king, Esther, and Haman. So she says, somebody's put a plot together to murder my entire people, and the king's like, well, who would do that? This guy, <laughs> This dinner party just got very, very awkward. And so it actually says that the king was so upset that he stormed out of the room and started walking around the garden. He was just, he was completely upset. Now, this reminded me of another story, the way that Esther set this up. Do you remember the story of uh, Nathan the prophet addressing David's guilt in 2 Samuel chapter 12? He tells him this story of a rich man who had taken something from a man who had very little, and David got super upset. And he's like, the man who did this should be killed on the spot. Nathan goes, you're the guy. <laughs> and David in that moment knew exactly what he was talking about. And he had this moment of breaking down and repenting. And so Esther's doing something similar here. She's setting it up in a way where she's not pointing the blame at the king. But she's saying, listen, buddy, you, you really blew this one. So the king is upset. He storms out the room. Listen, I think parents, we can learn a lesson from this as well. If you want your kids to learn valuable lessons, ask them questions to help them come to the right conclusion for themselves. Our tendency is to tell them why they're wrong rather than to help them discover it for themselves. It takes more work to do it that way, but it generally produces greater results. So king is mad, storms out of the room, into the garden. Haman now knows the game is up, and he starts begging and pleading Esther to spare his life. And then... Bible tells us that the king comes back into the room and he sees Haman basically like on top of Esther begging her for forgiveness on this couch. And the king is like, what are you in assaulting my wife? Like in, in right in front of me in my own house, he completely misinterprets the situation. So it says they covered his face. That means they probably put a bag over his head, right? <laughs> Picture this for a second. I mean, that's, this is where Haman is at now. He went from number two in the kingdom, the only one invited to the king and queen's dinner party, having the greatest time of his life, to parading his enemies around in front of everyone else and exalting them, now wearing a bag over his head, condemned to die. He's fallen a long ways in a very short time. And I love this. The king is mad and uh, he's upset. And then it says Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs. These guys have lots of ideas, okay? Every time that there's an idea, it usually comes from one of the king's eunuchs. Um, and they, he said, hey, I've got an idea. 
Haman built a 75-foot pole to hang Mordecai on. Why don't we use that for him instead? So Haman is executed on the very gallows that he intended for Mordecai. All right. Now let's go on to chapter 8 and read through that. Esther 8, verse 1. Here's what it says. On that day, King Ahasuerus, and now if you're, you're not tracking there, Xerxes Ahasuerus, same guy, different culture, different names, uh, but same guy. King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, the story for Esther could have ended right here. Right? She's safe at this point. Like, even if that decree is still in place, nobody's coming after the queen at this point. Right? The king has clearly indicated his favor over her. And Mordecai's safe too. He's now like number two in the kingdom. Nobody's coming after these two. It could have ended right there. And, and initially, when Esther was um, kind of dragged into this story, she didn't really want to get involved. In fact, what Mordecai actually had to say to convince her is, just because you're queen doesn't mean you're safe too. Right? He had to remind her that her own life was at risk. Esther was thinking about herself at the beginning of this story. But something has changed inside of her. Something has happened to her that's made her change the way that she thinks. And what started as self-preservation has now become a mission to save her people. This is one of those lessons that we learn as we grow up and certain events in our life tend to accelerate this growth. Um, you learn how to be selfless. You learn that the world doesn't revolve around you. If you think of a baby that's born, from the very beginning, what we think about is ourself. A baby will cry when they don't have exactly what they want at that moment. And sometimes we don't even know what to give them, right? But, but it's all about what I need in that moment. And if I'm upset, I'm going to cry about it. And that gradually changes over time. For some people, it changes faster than others, right? Some people maybe are, are, have lived most of their life and are still self-absorbed and are still thinking about themselves. But there are certain events in life that tend to accelerate that growth. In fact, when you get married, you now have another person that you live for, right? Healthy marriages are marriages where both partners learn to look out for the interests of the other person more than themselves. Maybe the biggest accelerant in life is the moment that you have children. <laughs> because not only does it require a sacrifice on your part, but initially you don't get anything back in return other than sleepless nights, right? The baby thinks only about themselves and, and also has many needs. And so you learn how to be selfless. Nothing will set up a family, a family for failure more than selfish parents. Now, we're all selfish to some extent, regardless of the maturity level that you've reached. It's part of our nature. It's who we want to be inside. 
but learning how to lay aside your self-interest is a process that comes through maturity. And Esther is saying, it's not enough that my cousin and I are safe. I'm in this for my people. I'm in this for them too. So verse three says this, then Esther spoke again to the king and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it pleased the king. So let me, I don't want to miss this again. She approached the king again. Right? This is, this is another, like, she's risking her life again. She's safe at this point. This is me, exclusively for her people. She approaches the king again. He extends the scepter to her one more time. And she said, if it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I'm pleasing in his eyes, that's a lot of disclaimers, right? Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamathida, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? And how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. All right, let me explain what's going on here. So Haman has the king's signet, signet ring. This is comparable to maybe the power of attorney that we would have here in the United States. So he had authority to make legal decisions and sign them into law on behalf of the king. That was an incredible amount of power. And so that, that ring, that authority after Haman was executed was passed on to Esther and Esther passed that on to Mordecai. So Mordecai now has this authority. And Esther says, I want you to revoke the letters that, that Haman sent to, uh, that he created to destroy the Jews. And the king says, I can't do that. Um, the reason is they had this thing that was known as the law of the Medes and the Persians. And once a law was signed into order, it could not be revoked even by the king himself. So the king says, well, I got rid of Haman. I gave you his house, but I can't revoke the decree. I can't take back what I signed into law. However, you have the same authority that Haman had. Make a new law. All right, that's what, that's what we do in the United States now anyway. If we don't like something, we just make a new law, right? We just change it. Uh, <laughs> so um, this, is, this is what's going on. And uh, Esther chapter 8, uh, verse 9 through, we'll read verse 9 now. It says, The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, and on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials 
of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote it in the name of King Hazarus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters mounted by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend them their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. All right. So basically what he's saying here is if anybody attacks the Jews on that day, then the Jews are justified to defend themselves and to do to their enemies exactly what could be done to them. Now, I, I don't know about you, but this, this passage actually makes me a little bit uncomfortable because any condoning of killing women and children, that can make for some awkward conversations as in our Bible studies, right? Uh, but this is not a hit order. Okay, this is not saying, listen, you can go out and kill them before they kill you. Uh, this is um, basically a provision of self-defense for the Jews. So um, there is some debate as to what it's actually saying. Um, some scholars think that that's, uh, what Scripture is saying is that anyone who attacks you, you can go and not only kill them, but kill their families as well. And then the other people read it and, and say, no, it, what it's actually saying is even women and children, if they attack you, they're, they're at risk there. You can defend yourself against anyone who would attack you. Regardless of what it says, um, what happened at, in, that we'll talk about next week was not um, a mass genocide of everyone who, who the Jews didn't like. It was a protection of... Um, of themselves, and, and I think that was the intent behind this order. And, you know, all that to say, um, this was an incredible picture of God's protection over his people. And we're, we're going to read the conclusion of the story next week, and it has a happy ending. Um, but the Bible is messy sometimes, right? There are some things in here. Uh, in fact, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I, and I mentioned that Haman's historical family uh, came from the Amalekites. And in fact, God uh, gave King Saul the instruction to kill King Agag and his family it, way, way long ago. And um, Saul was disobedient to God. And now as a result... This family lived on, and they're creating problems for the Jews. And so uh, this, there's more to this story than just two people who don't get along with each other and Mordecai and Haman who are having this feud. There's more to it than that, right? And sometimes we look at Scripture, and we can look at this passage and say, listen, uh, that doesn't sound like a very loving, compassionate God, right? Like, we can, we can read that in, in just this passage of scripture, not understanding the broader context of scripture and understanding what's going on here and assume certain things to be true about God. But the reality is there's a lot more going on here. There's a bigger picture being painted as well. And when we serve a God 
who sees everything and knows everything and has providence over everything, then we can look at scripture as a whole, take a step back and say, okay, God, I don't understand how everything works. I don't understand how everything is, is working in my situation right in this moment. But I know this, that you do. And so regardless of how I feel about what you've called me to do or about what you told me to do, regardless of how I feel about your laws and whether I think it's right or wrong, and, and, and regardless of what, what I might personally think about what scripture says, it really doesn't matter because you're sovereign and you're good and you're faithful and I can trust in you and say, okay, God, I don't have to understand everything. Now that is a big step for people who want to be in control of everything. Myself included, okay? I like to be in control. I, I like to know what's going on. And I, I don't want to just hear, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. My, my response, my natural inclination is to say, okay, but why? Why? And it, it's an act of faith to say, God, I don't understand everything that you tell us to do. But I'm going to trust you anyway. If we can learn to live our lives like that, listen, we're in for some blessing. We're in for some favor. When we learn to trust God and understand that his way is the best way, and that his word is truth, and we learn to be obedient to that word, then God's favor will rest on our lives as a result. So I want us to just jump down to, to verse 15 because there's, um, it's, the, the next few verses are kind of about how this message is distributed to everyone. And uh, you can read that on your own if you'd like. But verse 15 says this, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white. Remember just a few chapters ago, he was dressed in sackcloth, right? And now he's wearing royal robes of blue and white, with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Okay, so Susa is, is the capital city where the palace is uh, for the king of, of this empire. These are not, this is not a Jewish community, okay? But they've seen God's hand on Mordecai and they've seen how God has elevated him to this position. And as a result, there's rejoicing. And in fact, 16, it says, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Right? Everybody's excited. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So get this. Get this. Now Mordecai and Esther have risen so much in the kingdom that people around are like, listen, I'm not lining up with this Haman guy any longer. Like, I'm a Jew now. I love the Jews. I, I'm one of them now. Now, I don't know exactly what this means. There were different thoughts. As maybe it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I like the Jews. Now I could culturally, I could associate with them. Maybe it's going beyond that. Maybe there are actually people that are saying, no, 
I want to know a little bit about your God. Like, if he's done this for you, then maybe that's the God that I ought to serve. Maybe they even converted their faith to Judaism, to worshiping the one true God. (laughs) What an incredible picture, right? Isn't it amazing how things have turned from the desperate situation that they were in, even just from the beginning, an orphan girl living with her cousin in a foreign land, ashamed of their faith, ashamed of their heritage, to becoming queen and still being fearful in that situation, to now Mordecai being a part of the king's court, to being number two in the land, to Esther being the queen, to them being known to the rest of the kingdom as Jews and and being leaders in that way. It's amazing how God has transformed the situation. You know, uh, from the three characters, we'll exclude King Xerxes here in this moment, but I think we can learn something from each of the other three characters in this story. The first from Haman's life. Listen, what area of your life needs repentance? I want to ask this question because I genuinely believe that if Haman, at the moment that he discovered, listen, things aren't going right in my life, maybe I should change some things, maybe I should repent, I believe it could have been a different ending for him. But he stuck to his plan and his life was a mess and he ended up dying as a result. Listen, you got two choices in life. You can either hang on your own cross that you built or you can let Jesus pay the price on the cross that he hung on for your life. You can place yourself under the blood of Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness and repent of your sin and surrender your life to Christ. Or you can try to do it yourself. I can promise you that way ends up in a mess. Even for someone who's a believer and who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that decision to daily pick up your cross and follow him, that decision to continually be conformed to the image and the likeness of Christ that happens on a daily basis, that's what we need. And it's so easy for even a Christian, for someone who's acknowledged the truth, to get caught up in the lies of what this world has to offer. It's this constant state of repentance, of choosing to follow Christ. What area of your life needs repentance? Then we can learn from Esther too. Um, What in your life um, does selfishness need to make way for sacrifice? Where are you living for yourself? And God is calling you to lay that down and live for others, to live missionally, to think about those around you who need to know Christ, to lay that down. And then from Mordecai, so the lesson I think we can learn this week What authority have you been entrusted with? 
you know, when Mordecai was entrusted with, with the authority of the king's signet ring, he used it to make a new decree that would give hope to his people. Well, listen, God has entrusted you with opportunities that nobody else has, but because of where he's placed you, according to his plan, according to his providence, you have opportunities that nobody else has to make a difference in people's lives. What are you doing with that? You know, last week I, I issued a challenge and I asked that, that people would, over the next two weeks, find one opportunity to share their faith in some way, to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus. And a number of you have stepped up and accepted that challenge. Listen, uh, we got one week to go, but I want to hear your stories. I want to hear stories of boldness. And listen, I'm not just talking about the ones that, that turn out perfectly and how everybody's happy at the end. Listen, sometimes stories are painful. And you, you take a risk and you feel embarrassed and you feel ashamed or people react badly. Listen, that's, that's part of, of the story of being faithful too. Not everybody's going to receive what you have to offer with open arms. But being faithful with what God has entrusted you with is so critical. It's so important. And if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to be willing to step out, to be bold in our faith, and to use the position that God has given us to build his kingdom. Here's, here's the thing that I find most interesting in, about the book of Esther. And it's kind of this... this theme that I've discovered as I've read it, um, there's a kind of a parallel story in the book of Daniel. See, Daniel's brought into captivity. Um, he's not there by choice. It's a little different in that way, but they're, they're both under a, a foreign king, and they're both um, in a, a difficult position. And, and the thing about Daniel is, like, this guy is, is kind of perfect, He's kind of the guy that you just want to hit because he just does everything right, right? Uh, anybody know somebody like that that is like, oh, they just don't do anything wrong. Like, you just kind of always, whenever you're like in their presence, you're just like, oh, I, I can never be like that guy. And Daniel, pretty much from the very beginning, made every decision right. Like, the moment that he was um, brought into the, the king's court, like, they, they offered him this food, and he said, no, right away, no, we're going to honor the Lord. We're going to do what, what um, Scripture has told us to do. Bring us vegetables and water. We'll, we'll drink that and eat that instead of the king's food. And God honored that and blessed that. And, and then, like, it goes on to talk about his prayer life and how he's faithful in praying and, and ended up in the lion's den as a result, and God protected him. And, and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to the, the king's idol. And, I mean, this, this entire book is like this story of faithfulness and, and godliness. And uh, it doesn't really record anything that he did wrong. I'm sure he messed up somewhere along the line. But Esther... And Mordecai, same kind of story from the beginning. They're in a, a foreign land in captivity. They find themselves entangled with this king who's not godly in any way, shape, or form. And they kind of start out, eh, not, not so great. Right? They make some bad decisions from the very beginning. In fact, they're kind of worldly. They're kind of living for themselves. 
but you see this change and this progression and this growth in their life, you see how God has come into their lives and, and transformed them and shaped them into somebody that he could use. And, you know, I read that story and I think, man, that is so much hope for somebody like me. <laughs> like, I look at my life and all the mistakes that I've made, and I think about all the foolishness uh, that I've put myself through. And maybe you're kind of in that boat too, and you're like, listen, I'm no Daniel, right? But the beauty of the book of Esther is, is God can use somebody who's not perfect. And there's, there's this process of transformation that happened in their life. You see the growth happening. You see how God has changed them. And now they've turned into something that, that is actually pretty great. And God used them in an incredible way to save millions of lives. Listen, that's hope for us. At some point, Mordecai and Esther had to submit themselves to be used by God. And I believe that if we will do that too, if we will humble ourselves, say, God, I know I'm not perfect. I know my past is far from perfect. I've got a lot of character flaws. got a lot of things that, that need to get worked out still. But I'm here and I'm willing if you want to use me. God can do something with that. God can use you if you're willing to surrender your heart to him. I'm so grateful that we don't have to come to God perfect. Anybody else with me on that one? Yeah. Right? Yeah, like that. <sighs> but you know what, what's incredible? about scripture is that he continually uses people who are imperfect, who are failures, who make mistakes along the way in the journey. And he's a good God and he's faithful. So I wanna close this morning by just saying a prayer and maybe, um, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you today and he's calling you into something, calling you to take a step, calling you to take a leap of faith and you felt insecure or inadequate in some way. And you've listened to Satan's lies saying, hey, listen, God can't use you. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You've made too many mistakes. You've fallen short too much. And the Holy Spirit speaking to you today to let that go. I'm going to ask that as uh, we pray. If, if that's you this morning, would you just uh, acknowledge that by just raising a hand and saying, God, I want to give you that this morning. I just want to pray for you. Anybody that would like to do that? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Can we stand together in this place as, as we close? Lord, I, I thank you that you use broken and imperfect people. 
whether we acknowledge it or not, each one of us in this room is a testimony of that. But Lord, where we fall short, where we fail, where we're not enough, God, you are enough. So Lord, we lean on you today. We surrender our hearts to you. We say, God, however you want to use us, we give ourselves to you. We trust you. Lord, take us and use us for your glory and for your kingdom. We love you, Jesus, and we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen.